Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth and Education Think and Action Tank, LKMCO. Hello there, thanks for tuning in. It's good to have you with us. This episode of the podcast is a research roundup, and I'm talking to another new and wonderful member of the LKMCO team, Phil Yields. Phil has a background in computer science and primary teaching, and once commented that he runs courses on database management for five-year-olds. We're not yet sure if he was joking or not. Anyway, as well as being a dab hand with a copy of Excel, Phil has a real passion for the sociology of education and the political forces that leave their imprint on the system around us. Not all research is empirical, based on observations and measurements of the tangible aspects of the world around us, and in this episode, Phil's picked out three pieces of research that explore some of the really important conceptual, theoretical and philosophical work that interrogates young people's lives. So, sit back and enjoy, and if there's anything you hear that you want to discuss, well, you know who we are, and we'd love to hear from you. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Thanks everyone for tuning in. We have the delight to welcome today Phil Yields, who's the newest member of the LKM Co team. Hi Phil. Hi. How you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Excellent. Um, so we've got Phil in for the podcast to discuss three pieces of research he's read recently. But as we know, when we have someone new on the LKM Co podcast, we have to hit them with the time on an icebreaker, <laughs> uh, which is to ask you, Phil, of all the phases of education that you have been through as a kid uh, and a young person, which did you enjoy the most? So could you first of all give us a rundown of what you've, what you've been through? Which bits of the system have you been through? <laughs> which bits of the system? Uh, yeah, well, obviously I did primary, secondary, I went to a sixth form um, that was attached to a secondary and then into an undergrad degree and then I did my PGC in primary teaching and then returned to the primary sector as a teacher. Excellent. Um, yeah, in terms of the bit I enjoyed most as a student, I, I'd probably go for my undergrad degree. It was sort of, uh, it was pretty formative time uh, where I sort of found myself as a, as a person. Um, okay. Yeah, just enjoyed the ability to just go nuts and really go in depth into one particular topic, which yeah. for me was a degree in computer science. Okay. Which, yeah. Which we've been benefiting from hugely. <laughs> the, all, the, all the things you can do that we don't even begin to understand. Uh, so that's been great. And what would you what would you rank second? Oh, that's a tough call. Um, yeah, probably my PGC um, because that is well, it was it was quite a political awakening for me, um, moving from the rather abstract world of, as I mentioned, computer science to um, to having to really engage with the uh, societal issues that directly affect um, well primary schooling and in inner London as I was doing at the time. Okay. So, mm. yeah. And so you felt that kind of that came through in your PGC. There was a chance to explore that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. I really value the PGC specifically um, as a route into teaching because of the focus on academia and because of the engagement with the sociology of education, um, which can be lacking from some routes into teaching. Uh, I felt like that gave me a, a very good grounding on which to base my practice and was hugely influential part of my education. Okay, cool. 
So we've got three pieces today, one on youth volunteering and the youth service in England, one on silent classrooms, and the final one on, I guess, sort of reframing the profession around a national education service. So there's some, there's some gritty and controversial stuff in here, which is always nice to discuss on the podcast, so I reckon we should dive straight in. Um, yeah, definitely. So Phil, what have you got first up? What's the first piece you wanted to chat to me about? Okay, so the first one is a piece, it's a chapter of a recent book called by Bernard Davis called Austerity Youth Policy and the Deconstruction of the Youth Service in England. And this chapter is called, completely uncontroversially, Youth Volunteering, the New Panacea. Um, so it is uh, an analysis of the effect of volunteerism on the provision of youth services uh, it looks in particular at Step Up to Serve and uh, the uniformed youth services like the Scouts. Okay. What's the main argument in this piece, would you say? So Davis gives quite a long, justifiably long, that's not criticism, mm-hmm. um, quite a long overview of the recent history of the uniformed youth services and how they linked with the Youth United Foundation um, and sort of where funding was directed mm-hmm. um, over the last sort of decade or so. The Youth United Foundation um, was a body that was set up I cringe to say it, but this is the actual quote, over tea by uh, Prince Charles and the the then Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Met Police. Um, And the idea was to uh, bring together uniformed youth services, um, so for example, girl guiding with the police and military cadet forces, and generally to coordinate uniformed youth services. Okay. Um, So that was kind of non-military aligned groups like scouts and guides with military aligned groups like cadets. Yeah, and actually this was a fairly um, controversial aspect of it. Um, okay. And this, this is something that Davis interrogates at some length is, um, you know, how much did organisations such as scouts, which had, which had worked for quite a long time to distance themselves from their t- traditionally militaristic image, mm. how much have they sold out, for want of a better term, um, by accepting government funding to... Uh, alongside these military organi- military youth organisations. Okay. And one of the questions that um, comes to mind for someone like me who's coming to concepts like youth social action quite fresh is how is youth social action the same as overlaps with or distinct from like volunteering um, or collective action? And that's something that's explored in this chapter in quite mm. interesting ways. What does um, what does Davies have to say? Yeah, so youth social action is something that's had a lot of definitions over the last many years since it's become a term. It is slightly distinct from volunteering okay. um, because it is specifically aimed at um, sort of community betterment, um, whereas volunteering can be fairly neutral projects. Okay. It is still quite distinct from youth activism. There's a nice paper by uh, Bosillo and Prolotensky from 2007 that's that characterises this kind of action into, into two camps. So you've got the ameliorative action, uh, which seeks to maintain the status quo but improve the situation, versus transformative action, which um, seeks to more radically challenge the current state of affairs. So that will be, rather than improving the situation, it'll be about tackling the root cause of, of a societal issue, okay. um, is what they would call transformative action. Mm. Um, most of the volunteering vo- volunteerism tends to be geared more towards um, ameliorative action. So, for example, some of the, um, the activities that were achieved under the, um, the Youth United Foundation schemes mm. were things like community gardening, gardening 
care home visits, litter picking, and then what they've called campaigning activities relating to Remembrance Day activities such as parading. So those are, they're not, they're not, not valuable, mm. but um, they are fundamentally not challenging the current state of affairs. Okay. Yeah, so this is sort of where I'm drawing the distinction between those kinds of activities and activism, which mm. tends to be more radical. Okay. And Step Up to Serve have, have, have made, made quite a big uh, investigation into this in their own evaluation. There's quite a lot, there's quite a serious class disparity in participation in these kinds of activities. Oh, okay. So um, you get a much higher proportion of privileged children participating than working class children. And again, it's to be expected. I mean, if you're being recruited into like unpaid work, mm. which is how Davis puts it, that's not to criticise or volunteering, but that is how Davis describes it from mm. a sort of perspective of a uh, young working class person. Uh, if you're being recruited into unpaid, unpaid work, especially that which doesn't even attempt to tackle the fundamental issues that are affecting your life, mm. you know, you're not going to feel too enthused about that. Okay. And again, it's, it's often in question, again, David highlights this, how voluntary this volunteering actually is, given that you know, 75% of participants in a 2015 survey said that their primary sort of point of engagement had been through their school. Okay. So that is quite different to an organic grassroots movement mm. that forms amongst the community. It's, it's, it's more of an imposition. So then there's questions around like how much are people actually engaging with that community with those issues? How much is it for their individual benefit? Why this chapter particularly appealed to me is because it does interrogate the implicit message that these schemes are putting forward. You know, they're presented as a, as a taken-for-granted public good without actually interrogating the more subtle messaging behind them. Mm. You know, if you contrast, as I said, a sort of a spontaneous organic grassroots organisation around, for example, saving a local youth centre, right? That is quite different to a sort of school-imposed, let's think of something to do that's good in the community, let's paint a mural. Mm. If you see that, it's a rather cynical example, but mm. just, just to draw the sharp contrast that mm. I'm sort of looking for. So, yeah, this is, this is largely the, the thrust of Davis's chapter here, okay. is to interrogate that dichotomy. So, in other words, volunteering does do good in the community, but it's politically safe. Mm. If you see what I mean, it's not it's not a threat to mm. the status quo, mm. and this is what Davis is challenging. I think there's some really interesting kind of thoughts going on in there, and I've as you've been describing Davis' argument, I've been thinking back to um, my involvement when I was doing my PhD uh, at the University of Manchester with the team there that coordinated um, kind of really centrally coordinated a program where students could be really involved in volunteering as part of studying studying their courses. Mm. Um, and something I think I realised during the process of that, again, just anecdotally, is that um, there was a lot of, I suppose, what this paper would describe as kind of centrally organised, very much in, kind of in the vein of volunteering mm. rather than activism. So mm. I remember accompanying students out to do gardening um, at old people's homes. Mm. But depending on how you looked at it, that could either be an example of completely politically neutral uh, and largely a group of individual students who come together for the two hours but then probably wouldn't do anything together again afterwards, mm. uh, apart from maybe chat a bit on the bus home. But another way of looking at it is that in the process we probably built stronger links between the university and its community, which the, the University of Manchester was one of many universities that kind of cottoned on to this fact that actually we need to 
you know, be more present in our communities in all kinds of ways so that people know that students are these sorts of people. You can chat to them, you know, they're, they're nice, they, they're interesting, they're doing all kinds of different stuff. You know, in the process, you're kind of making the university a more civic thing, and that then becomes something quite political. I think it's, um, yeah. it's yeah. it kind of depends depends how you look at it. And obviously, that, I'm not saying that it's necessarily the same as a group of students mobilising to restructure the way in which economics is thought to them, which was happening around the same time, <laughs> uh, because they felt that it wasn't meeting their needs as kind of engaged young citizens. Um, but there, it's kind of a sliding scale of stuff. Um, I, yeah, I think. And I suppose a third way to look at that would be also to uh, see it as reinforcing the defunding of uh, social work, social care provision. Okay. So if care homes in general, I'm not saying this is the case for your project. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of other ways to analyse this. Yeah. And it, again, making it re politicising something that has been presented as politically neutral. Mm. You know, if care homes are able to rely on volunteers to do the gardening, mm. you can take funding away from care homes. Mm. You know, and given that, you know, ideologically, the Conservative Party is inclined towards smaller government reduced public services, mm. it is indirectly supporting those goals, mm. one could argue. Mm. That's not to say that it was a bad thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to sound like I'm saying people in garden for well, old people is, are horrible. No. It's like, I, just, I just think it's important to think like, and, and this again is why this is an interesting chapter is it, it makes you ask those sort of questions where you critically analyse things that are just kind of taken for granted mm. kind of across the uh, sort of mainstream political spectrum as just good um, and apolitical. Mm. I definitely think, I think one of the most useful aspects of this paper for me was that um, that reminder that when something is presented as apolitical, it's it's probably a hoax. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's pretty hard for things to be apolitical. Yeah. Um, so that's one of I think one of many kind of interesting, useful contributions from that paper. Which sadly we have to move on from now because we're limited by time. Um, <laughs> the next piece we're going to look at is about silent classrooms. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So this is a piece by Lucy Wenham from the University of Bristol in the Journal of Critical Education Policy Studies. Um, it's a recent one, isn't it? Out it is a spring. recent one, yeah, April's <laughs> edition, yeah. Uh, and it has the longest title I've ever seen. It's horrible and the class is too silent. A silent classroom environment can lead to a paralysing fear of being put on the spot, called out, shown up, shamed or humiliated. Which is very long, but it does, I suppose, sum up what the paper is about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a study into people's experiences of the, of the silent classroom. So that's, that's a classroom environment, environment in which talk is, is rigidly discouraged. And the aim of this paper is to give a voice to students who have uh, experienced some time being removed from the mainstream classroom setting. So, so is it focusing on kids who weren't in the mainstream in, in, in the school class as long as all their peers, but they didn't, what, they were yeah, so it's, it's like giving, units or something? Or? Yeah, it gives a voice to several students who had experienced time um, either in a pro or who had been internally excluded. Okay. So students who had experience of um, being removed from the classroom setting, not necessarily permanently, but in, in a variety of, of ways. Okay. Um, so that was a, it was a series of semi-structured interviews some small group and one-to-one -one teaching by Wenham. Mm. Uh, and it's essentially an analysis of the effects of the current trend towards like quote-unquote strict behaviour management, so sort of disciplinarian approaches. Mm. And the sort of key themes that come out of the interviews, there's, there's, there's three really, so it's tedium. Um, so that's, that's 
it, whilst recognising that in both silent classrooms and those in which talk is permitted, work does get done either way. Mm. Um, but participants did note that in the silent classroom, time appears to go more slowly. They experience feelings of boredom, negative feelings associated with the classroom, and that boredom could also act to sustain the silence, mm. making so it's kind of vicious cycle. And then this this sort of is a strong risk of disengagement with education if you're experiencing extreme tedium on a daily basis. You know that's not conducive to enthusiasm about school. And the second thing that appears is sort of fear and shame. So several participants talked about the fear associated with asking for help in particular in the silent okay. classroom. So like when a difficult task is set, um, several of the interviews felt unable to ask for help because they felt that, that they were under intense scrutiny both by the teacher and also by their peers for being the only one to ask for help. The final thing that comes out is anger. So this is sort of born of the fear and shame thing, but I think it's worth highlighting separately. So one participant in particular described being singled out to complete a task that he felt unable to do. Mm. Um, linking, and it's linked back, he also talks about feeling unable to ask for help. Mm. So he's feeling quite a lot of shame. The teacher's response is to then sanction the non-compliant behaviour. You know, it's not explicitly disruptive, but he is not doing what's been asked of him. Mm. So in this kind of zero tolerance environment, he's not complying, he's going to be sanctioned. Um, and then that leads to anger, confrontation, further sanctions, exclusion, etc. Mm. So those are the sort of three key okay. themes that emerge from the interview. Mm. Do you have a sense of, either from this article or from other bits of research, uh, the prevalence of these sorts of policies in schools, like if you, you know, if you were to go into every school in the country, mm -hmm. what proportion of those would, what proportion of the classrooms you would see would be kind of run by these sorts of principles? No, I'm not, I'm not sure I could put a number on the actual number of schools who implement this kind of zero tolerance mm -hmm. approach, but there's certainly a number of high profile cases and it is evident throughout the government's guidance around behaviour management. So one thing Wenham does in this is uh, track government guidance around behaviour management from the 2005 STEER report to now. And what um, was the STEER report? Was that an earlier report on behaviour management or yeah, something? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so, there's, so what Wenham notices is a sort of consistent expectation of rewards and sanctions. Rewards and sanctions, rewards and sanctions, very consistent application thereof, um, which she argues creates a situation where the strict and even silent classroom is well regarded. Um, so more recent government ad advice downplays the preventative measures that were present in the 2005 report. Okay. So she starts referring to the DfE's 2016 behaviour management guidance. Um, and she notes that, uh, and, and this is a quote from the guidance, making sure all adults in the room know how to respond to sensitive pupils with special needs, that only appears in a supplementary document to the main guidance. It doesn't appear in the primary document. Okay. So that's a, that's a shift even more towards this kind of rewards and sanctions narrative from the 2005 report. Mm. Yeah, the other aspect of that is also um, like actual practitioners' interpretation of that guidance. So again, when it talks about how that is highly varied, because that will vary by, you know, it's a, so a blanket policy of consistent rewards and sanctions shift towards a more disciplinarian approach. But that guidance is then interpreted in, in a really diverse variety of ways by actual practitioners. So this can be affected by... Um, sort of the personal politics of the practitioner or just even just their understanding of the written guidance by management's understanding of the written guidance you know it's 
the kind of blanket approach just isn't very helpful. You know, whatever you think about the sort of more disciplinarian attitude towards behaviour management, mm. that kind of blanket, just like consistent rewards and sanctions, it's just not helpful to actual practitioners. In terms of how far the silent classroom goes before it is a problem, I mean, Wenham explicitly says, I love this, this is the final sentence of the paper. This research suggests that the perpetually silent classroom should never be used. So it's completely unambiguous. And I I think largely Wenham would agree with me on the kind of messages that that sends because the alternative Mm. she proposes draws heavily on critical pedagogy, so encouraging more debate, mm. encouraging more class discussion and mm. sort of co-construction of learning rather than just imposing a silent classroom and lecturing. Mm. And so that only a distinct criticism of the perpetually silent classroom, is there room for a classroom that's silent sometimes? Well, I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone's arguing that silence itself is, is inherently problematic. Like, there are times when people will just be concentrating and quiet. But I think an imposition of silence as a goal of the classroom environment is highly problematic, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting stuff, Phil. Uh, we must move on to our <laughs> final piece. Um, and this goes right the way back to look at the system as a whole. Mm. Um, bring us up to speed with this piece. Yeah, so this is A New Deal for the Teaching Profession by Howard Stevenson. Um, who's the Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Nottingham University. This was uh, in one of last year's editions. It was in the second forum from last year, so it's a journal dedicated to comprehensive education. Um, So it's essentially a reflection upon how any future government hoping to implement a Labour-style national education service would need to radically rethink the relationship between government and the teaching profession. So Stevenson is heavily involved with both UCU and the NEU, so his, this, this kind of industrial relations thing around the education is, is, is his bag, basically. Okay. So, and it's yeah. an interesting uh, paper to think about. Whatever your political persuasions or whatever your thoughts on the content of his argument, mm. lots of people talking about the potential for a general election this year. Mm-hmm. It's quite hard to tell, given the current political environment, <laughs> what that might produce. So these yeah. sorts of questions are always useful, like what might, if another government came to power and they followed through on their manifesto pledges, what might that look like? So that's one way in which this paper is quite a useful thing to be reading. Yeah, well I think Stevenson's been pretty canny here by talking about any government, who, any future government that would want to implement a national education service rather than specifically saying Labour's vision of the national education okay. service, because that allows for a bit more exploration around like mm. uh, how that would work rather than just specifically engaging with their manifesto. Okay. Um, although obviously that is, that is an important like Labour's vision of the National Education Service is obviously an important step in developing the discourse around national education services. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think um, he's taken a good tack here, basically. Yeah. yeah. So he starts um, he starts by sort of recapping the teacher recruitment retention crisis, uh, and he identifies three key factors that drive teachers out of the profession. So there's workload, which is typically over 50 hours a week and quite often over 60. I know mine was over 60, mm. um, which is substantially above the OECD, OECD average, and that's unsustainable. Uh, pay, so consistent, that's been consistently reduced in real terms since the economic crisis. And uh, as a result, ha- um, Stevenson argues that teaching has become uncompetitive compared to other graduate jobs, in addition to there being significant gender-based inequalities in the profession. Mm. And also, 
the reduced professional autonomy of the teacher. So that's, that's a bit more overlooked by the media um, than the other two, but it essentially amounts to out-of-control datification of teaching, wildly increased authority given over to senior leadership teams and the sort of creation of a highly hierarchical professional environment. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote Howard at a bit of length here because I think this is important. But he, uh, he says, what matters is what can be measured. Teaching as a complex social process based on the development of human relationships is replaced by the teacher as technician, teaching in prescribed ways, phonics for example, to deliver progress. In quotes. Progress only becomes real, and that is valued, when it can be evidenced and measured. Teachers do not experience teaching as a creative, exciting and inspiring process that challenges them intellectually, but as alienated labour in which compliance and standardisation are valued. Mm. That's quite a bleak portrayal of the profession, and is it not, not the case that there are plenty of schools where, even if that's uh, to some extent an accurate representation of the pressures on schools, so to do things in a very standardised way, uh, to, and the extent to which that, that probably does stifle individual professional autonomy, don't good schools manage to push back against that and say, look, we'll, as the heads, as the senior leadership team, We'll, we'll worry about the next, next Ofsted inspection, we'll worry about our performance tables, you get on with being excellent teachers in the way that you know best in your classrooms. Or is that, a, is that in and itself a really inaccurate portrayal of the system? Isn't, there, <laughs> isn't the reality kind of a mixture of the two? Well, I mean, you know me, so I've been a union activist for a long time, so I'm going to get quite grumpy here. Okay. But <laughs> um, the podcast is a forum for grievances oh, yes. as well. As <laughs> listeners, so. Yeah, so I, I think, like, Although there are schools that, that uh, fight back against these these issues in the profession, it is ultimately a systemic issue, and this is what this is the argument that Stevenson's making. You know, he's not saying that there aren't some schools in which it's better and some schools in which it's worse. He's arguing that these are systemic issues for yeah. education in the UK, and he highlight actually he highlights a number of secondary factors that contribute to those main three issues. So, for example, teacher contracts are quite weak, especially compared to elsewhere in the world. Um, We've got a high-stakes accountability, accountability system, uh, pays performance-related, managerialism still on the increase, and teacher training is fairly chaotic. Um, and teacher sort of professional development is also quite inadequate, to be honest. So, yeah, so we're talking, we're talking system-wide. I'm sure there are some schools which are lovely to work in. Mm. I've worked in a few myself, but we're talking systemic. Mm. Okay. I suppose there, there is, uh, even if... Uh, good schools manage to push against this stuff, they, perhaps they shouldn't have to be pushing against it. That's going to be taking up a certain degree of their energy and resources and, and attention. So it's... Uh, yeah, and actually something else just occurred to me is you're saying good schools, and mm. I'm assuming you mean schools that are good to work in, but actually, you know, the whole discourse around what is a good school is still quite controversial. Mm. You know, what what is perceived to be a good school by government, by Ofsted, by management by teachers are all quite different things. Mm. You know, we're talking about schools that are a sensible place to work in, that are tolerable, have tolerable working conditions, mm. or are uh, pedagogically in line with what we think, you know, but in terms of what is expected by, say, the government, it's quite a different set of things, isn't mm. it? Sure. So, no, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, in the very limited time we've got left, do you want to quickly run through what <laughs> Stevenson's proposed alternative model might look like? Yeah, sure. So um, he argues for a really ra quite radical reconstruction of the profession. So there's, I'll, I'll try and whiz through the four uh, suggestions he makes. So he, 
he argues for a national professional summit, so a major conference of education stakeholders, uh, okay. as a foundational s- step in establishing the National Education Service. Okay. Um, possibly also with local summits that feed into it. And, and this is really, I mean, Howard loves a bit of Gramsci, right? So this, he, this is quite focused on establishing the social movement that, would be, that he argues would be necessary to build a national education service of any merit, basically. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I completely agree with that. If it's, so it's, if it's not collective action. Exactly. If it's not based on a movement of the profession, then what's the point of it? You know, we've already got an education system which is imposed by government, particularly ministers who have never taught primarily. Mm. So if we're going to radically challenge that to build a better education system, then yes, it should be based on, based on a movement of teachers. Okay. Um, he does also note that there will be quite a lot of challenge from within the current system. So uh, this, is, this is a quote from the paper. There will also be powerful voices inside the profession who have built their careers within the academised model of schools as edgy businesses. So he, again, he's directly challenging the academy's mod- model as detrimental to a movement of the profession, okay. particularly because um, of their ability to vary teacher working conditions, for example. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And the second suggestion he makes is to re-establish national collective bargaining. Again, stronger teacher contracts, arguing against, um, against the academy system. Um, he wants to redevelop national contract for teachers to counteract the marginalisation, as he puts it, of the teacher's voice in the education debate, which has taken place over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, third suggestion is to formalise workplace representation for school staff. So he highlights the need for an independent staff voice. So this could be done through the re-establishment of democratically elected governing bodies. But he also um, makes the point that the thought could be given to structures that sit within the school but outside of the governing body. So um, I think they have something like that within the Italian system. Okay. So he, well, he argues for workplace committees to be formed to discuss key issues. So that's everything from health and safety to professional development. Mm. Final suggestion he makes is to address teacher education and professional development. He wants a more long-term perspective of professional development over the course of a career. Mm. Um, and to abolish performance-related pay in favour of something more constructive, so more like the Scottish professional update system, which has a more nuanced procedure of developmental career reviews. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then he finishes off by summarising his recommendations, reiterating the need um, for a future national education service to have foundations in a social movement of the profession, mm. um, because he, what he's really arguing for is teacher agency in their own field of expertise yeah um, so it's about sort of shaping their own working life and using or to having respect for the professional knowledge and experience of people who are doing the work so despite the benefits that would that Stevenson's putting forward through this model so I suppose reducing it down to its core it's what you just summarized there around teachers having more professional autonomy having a greater voice in what they do and how they do it, and actually realising that day-to-day, being able to kind of have more agency over their practice, all of which sounds really laudable, and we know teachers teachers are calling out for that already under the current system. <clears throat> I imagine there's perhaps an issue in, in getting this sort of model off the ground, just in terms of the amount of time and effort that you would need from the collectivity itself, from teachers in this country to to work on something like that, precisely because, as we know, they're already overworked. 
So to kind of add to their plate, uh, forming something as formidable as this <laughs> could struggle to, well, what's got to give to actually get, it, or do we just have here the classic case of the academic sitting in his ivory tower putting forward a system that actually isn't remotely achievable? Well, I know how reasonably well, and that is definitely not the case. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, I would say that's not really an argument against doing it. Okay. You know, like, Things, things, radical change needs work. Yeah. And this is exactly why he highlights the need for a social movement, because nothing else is going to animate the profession. Okay. Like, if the government just says, oh, I mean, you can see that in the various consultations they've had on, like, workload and stuff. Mm. You know, they put out a tokenistic request, or tell us what the problems with workload are. They don't get a massive response. People aren't engaged. Mm. What we're looking for here is a grassroots restructuring of education mm. led by the profession as a, as a collective. Mm. Um, so... You know, yes, it will be work, but I mean, people do already put in that work because mm. I mean, why? You know, if if they didn't, we wouldn't have any union reps, mm. we wouldn't have any activists, we wouldn't have any campaigners. That's a, that's a really fair point, and I think that's also a really useful example of the existing channels that are uh, provided for teachers to have these sorts of voices, but they're often, you know, you know, maybe they're not they're not actually used very effectively, mm. or they're not they're not. Teachers can tell they're not particularly genuine channels, so they choose not to prioritise. That's yeah. that's quite well. I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, it if you're already overworked, if it's not going to have an, if it's not meaningful, mm. why would you bother engaging with it? Mm. You know, yeah. you've just done a sixty-five hour week. Mm. You're not going to sit at home and write a short essay for the government to ignore, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 if you're organised, if you're if you're like going, if if you're setting up a local caucus on like, mm. whereas. The, the sort of professional summit, I think um, Stevenson termed it. If, if you're setting up a local caucus to have meaningful debates with your peers um, about uh, pedagogical practice or the structure of the education system or that sort of thing that you feel is going to have a really meaningful engagement, mm. then you know that is, that is inherently a lot more motivating. And it kind of comes back to what we were saying in the um, Davis paper about uh, imposed volunteerism versus grassroots movements. Mm. People are animated by grassroots movements. Mm. That's why they're grassroots. Right. You know. Yeah. And actually something, as someone who's never taught, something I've always been kind of amazed, almost a bit spooked by when I've been into schools, is the, the number of teachers who, on top of their 60-hour week, as we've been describing, they have, they've kind of created their own informal networks with other teachers or people mm. who trained at the same time with them for so other yeah. sen- if they're a senko then other senkos in the mm. local authority to uh, to kind of counsel each other or to share mm. best practice to see what each other's doing they're, they're doing that entirely voluntarily at their, yes. you know, their own measure but because they really believe in it and they can see they can see the benefit and perhaps yeah. crucially as you just said they've done it themselves so they've really invested in it well exactly this is this is a sort of collective action of peers isn't it rather than something imposed by I mean you know, we're talking about involving the, prof- the profession, but this is, the, again, this is the distinction between networks of peers, as you've highlighted, mm. you know, in my, in my experience, trade unions, in your experience, professional networks like that, mm. um, compared to the government getting the odd superstar head to make some pronouncements that mm. are not particularly helpful or challenging, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really helpful distinction. Yeah. So we've come to time. I think these the three pieces you've brought along today for a really useful reminder that when we talk about research, particularly in our sector, for instance, it doesn't just mean 
empirical research. Uh, it's also the kind of conceptual or theoretical work behind the words that we use, the language that we use, all the kind of systems that we're working with, and that's a really important part of the puzzle. And actually, even when we're looking at what you what might be seen as quite kind of dry quantitative pieces, like we've discussed on other episodes of the podcast, there will be concepts latent in there and language that we're using to pick out the bits of the world that we're talking about. Mm. Um, and yeah, these these sorts of pieces that we've discussed today that deal with the bigger themes, the bigger narratives, the, the thorny political bits are a crucial part of the the cake as well. So yeah. it's well, useful to I, be able I mean, to discuss them. I think I think we ignore the uh, sociology of education at our, at our extreme peril. Mm. Put it that way. I mean, we are social science researchers. We have to bear in mind that everybody's got an agenda, whether they know it or not. Everything's political. You know, edu- <laughs> education is an inherently political act. Mm. You know, we talk about depoliticizing education, being neutral in the classroom, but everything has a message, including being quote unquote apolitical, as you yourself noted earlier. Mm. That is inherently saying we support the status quo. Mm. You know. So, yeah, we, I think it's very important to engage with these more philosophical, political pieces as well. They are crucial parts of the literature, and whether you agree with them or not, they are part of the discourse. Thank you, Phil, for giving us the time to, to do just that. That's all and right. hopefully see you again on the podcast soon. Yeah, wicked. Thank you. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone who you know will find it interesting or was affected by the specific issues we've covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Lovely couple of instant. Oh, one last and very important message. This is the last ever LKM Co podcast. No, don't worry, we're not going away. But here at LKM Co, we're about to make some exciting changes, like our name and our logo. So when our next episode arrives in your app in a few weeks' time, just a heads up that although we might sound familiar, we might look a bit different. See you soon.